my dad committed a crime that could have gotten him the death penalty. <clears throat> so when he got out of San Quentin Penitentiary, um, he needed to do two things. He needed to go to a place where you could lie about being a violent felon. Welcome to the Persistence You podcast with Lisbeth, and that's you as in university. But we're much more of a community here. I'm your host, Lisbeth Meredith, author, speaker, and online teacher. Each week, I'll be delivering stories from amazing survivors and strivers, all threaded together with a dose of persistence. So glad you're listening. You are going to adore this episode as much as I did, I think. David Crow is such a talented author. His story is nothing short of just, I don't know, jaw-dropping. And I adore his, frankly, his humble spirit and just how convivial the conversation was. It was like meeting up with an old friend when I got to interview him. So I hope you enjoy it. He is the epitome of resilience, quite frankly, and someone who's done a lot of work to be able to put some really rough situations that happened in his life into a perspective, not to forget them, but to incorporate them to becoming the strong and amazing person he is today. And this episode wanted to remind you that I've got a few individual coaching sessions available for midlife women, particularly women more my own age who are, quite frankly, sick of eating life's leftovers and who may be ready to deal with some very old traumas themselves and move forward, or who simply are ready to put themselves more toward the top of their own priority list. If it sounds like you, I've got a free discovery session. So find me at lameredith.com and connect with me there and sign up for your free discovery session and see if maybe we can work together if that sounds like you. All right, let's get started. My friends, I could not be more honored to have author David Crow with us. I have a couple of dear friends who said, you must have him on the podcast. He's just an author to be watching. And I read his book, Pale Face Lie. And one of the things that struck me about David Crow's book was a quote that just reached out and grabbed me by the shoulders. As a little boy, when he was told by his father, we have to get rid of your mother. And think about that. The, the thing that one parent says to a child, we have to get rid of your mother. And the most horrifying part in this memoir was that his father meant it. So David Crow is with us today as a successful author who did not buy into either parent's messages and who is, to me, just the picture of resilience and success. He is a speaker and his memoir, Pale Face Lie, which has a beautiful subtitle he'll tell you about is now optioned to become film. And I, for one, cannot wait to see it. Thank you so much, David Crow, for being here today on Persistence U. Lisbeth, it's an honor. <clears throat> and I'm a huge admirer of yours too. And think what you've gone through in your story is every bit as compelling and maybe a whole lot more. Oh, absolutely not. But thank you for saying that. And in some ways, when I read your book, I thought there are a lot of through threads with our stories. 
And one of those things is when you're a small child, if your parents, let's say there's violence in the home and then the parents break up, often children, certainly kids in my household like myself or kids that I've worked with in child protective services or in probation work, they're told in really toxic families, hey, pick a lane. You know what? You can pick one parent to be with and you're going to choose that parent or you're being disloyal and you'll find yourself homeless. And so when I read your story, it just had me reliving some memories all over again. And I was so inspired by how you've moved through it. So can you tell us just a little bit about yourself and then that story on the Navajo Nation? You grew up on a reservation and how you made it your how you made your way to today. Well, thank you. So my dad committed a crime that could have gotten him the death penalty. So when he got out of San Quentin Penitentiary, um, he needed to do two things. He needed to go to a place where you could lie about being a violent felon. Because as we all know, when you have to check the violent felon box, you don't get the job. And uh, not that that I would want to hire one either. So... (laughs) And the other part is dad worried that his accomplice might find him. Dad wasn't afraid of his accomplice. He wasn't afraid of anybody. He's a very violent, very powerful guy, but he's afraid of an ambush. So we went to the Navajo Indian Reservation, um, and he thought that he could lie about being a violent felon. No one would care, particularly in the 50s and 60s when there weren't enough Navajo people trained for most jobs because the education part. Um, if you were willing to go there, you would get promoted the first day if you didn't shoot somebody or get, you know, kill somebody on a drunk driving accident. It was an easy place to make it. <clears throat> and the, his accomplice never fought the look there. So here we are going up on an, on an Indian reservation. Yeah. My older sister's five years older. My mom was pregnant with her when dad went into San Quentin and I was born nine months after he got out. <clears throat> but uh, so, you know, like, you know, this was when you're a kid, you, that's all you know. You don't know if you're, uh, your family's the best, worst, happy, sad. It takes time <laughs> to figure that out. But what wasn't hard to figure out, my first real memory, um, which starts the book, is we have to get rid of your mother because if you grow up with her, you'll be crazy just like she is, and we can't have that. And so the book starts from there. <clears throat> and it never got better. I mean, it was just a roller coaster ride all the way into my 20s when I had to confront my father about a murder and stop him. <clears throat> and um, as, as you know, because we had the same kind of childhood, every day is just a day to get through. You, you only want to survive that day. <clears throat> and like you, I found my own outlets. I'd love to run and still do exercise, and I love to read. And even though I'm very dyslexic, um, I remember what I read, and I worked real hard at it and just tried as hard as I can, I could, to read for hour after hour. And I could escape in books. I could escape when I ran. And then I would leave my house. So I never wanted to spend one minute inside our household. So as a kid, I would run and talk to the Navajo people, When we were in town, I would talk to everybody. I just did anything I could do to escape and act outside of being David Crow in that terrible household. And it really, that's really was my mechanism. Just get away, think other thoughts, 
concentrate on anything but being who you are. I love it because even then you knew, well, especially running to books as a child who had dyslexia, but books or schooling or just getting out, knowing what your strengths were, just helped you kind of get to the point where you realized your life is a story. I mean, I feel like all of our lives are a story, but you have that removal from it if you find different things to help you in the thick of the crisis. You know, you find a little bit of objectivity, removal, a little bit of hope, and getting through it one day at a time is a wonderful thing. I remember reading that schooling for you, I mean, you really fought to get an education, whereas your dad was just as happy to keep you out of school all the time if he needed to. Yeah, dad, my dad had really a genius IQ. And he had a very difficult life um, in terms of education. He grew up in the Dust Bowl, Oklahoma, a father who couldn't read or write, I think, because he was dyslexic, but we'll never know. A very angry man, a very bitter man. And uh, they would yank my dad out of school. He's an only child to pick cotton all day. They would just wander around Oklahoma, Texas, looking for cotton to pick. But dad could pick up books like physics, chemistry, man, and read them. He understood them. Wow. And, um, you know, I don't consider myself a dummy, but my brain didn't work that way. And so when I was dyslexic and slow, he would tell me how stupid I was and hit me. <clears throat> and, of course, I always had that fight back part. I know, Elizabeth, you do, too. The only people that survive our kind of childhood have a very strong moral compass and a very strong sense of you will not hold me down. I will fight through this. I will get through this. <clears throat> and I had that in spades, as you do. We both have siblings who don't, and it's sad. And you wish that you could give them that. But I was always fighting back in my own way. I'm not going to be stupid. I'm not going to be slow. I'm not going to be isolated. I'm going to be out in the world, and I'm going to make something of myself in the world. Although... <clears throat> On most days, I had no idea how, but, you know, <laughs> I, I could uh, always entertain adults. I would walk up to any adult who would talk to me. I would talk to them and they would crack them up, right? I would just walk up and, hi, mister, what do you do for a living? I'm David. Can I come inside your store and talk to you? And, of course, <laughs> some of them gave me a swift kick in the fanny, but a lot of them let me in. And on the reservation, there were there was a trading post operator named Earl Ashcroft, God bless Earl, and send the book. And Earl spoke five languages, wow. Navajo, Apache, uh, Zuni, I think uh, Spanish, and at least one other language. And so the Indians would come into his trading post and there's no store for 30 miles. I mean, this is it. And he would pull out a ledger and he would speak to them in their language and make markings and they would swap, um, you know, sh- sheepskin, mutton, and they would trade, buy, sell, and trade. And he would let me follow him around all through the store and listen to these languages and hang out. And so my fun was doing things like that and then playing sports and then go home and read until I fell asleep. Love it. Kept you out of some of the fray. It kept you out of some of the fray. And for me reading, and I was very lucky because my mother was very committed to getting books. If I liked reading, she was committed to getting books. And that was a real stronghold uh, of hers. I mean, it was real positive. But I used to think my life is a story. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it's just a story. It's not so personal. It's it's just another story. And I feel like that, I 
think reading and writing really help us as kids. And yeah. for you being a scrappy, likable kid that that you knew you wanted to survive, I feel like people respond to that even though they don't know why they're responding well to that. The teachers, the neighbors, the shopkeeper, you know, they respond to that because they admire it and they don't even know why they're advocating for you. They just do. They just do. That's very well said. And, uh, you know, the thing, uh, you escape into other people's lives and you imagine <clears throat> that your life doesn't have to be the sad life it is. That maybe, you know, when I was a kid, you know, I wanted to be Roy Rogers. I wanted to be John Wayne, you know, all that. <laughs> sure. And I'd see a train go by and I wanted to be the conductor, you know, but but I didn't know it, but I was doing it. And I bet you were, too, um, is what you're doing is seeing that your life might be a success. never walked and he held the mile world record at the university of kansas ran the olympics wow. so i would read stories like that and say well wait a minute <clears throat> if glenn cunningham was not supposed to be able to walk and he set a world record surely i can do more than i'm doing and then with helen keller you know i really felt i had all these disabilities and i did <clears throat> but you can overcome them if you work hard enough at it but she had 10 times as many disabilities. She could never see. She could never hear. Right. Um, and look what she did. <clears throat> you know, she she became this world scholar, world famous person. And so I, I would keep things like that in mind and say, well, wait a minute. You can do it, too. Absolutely. You can do it. And you did do it when your parents, especially your dad, moved you round and round and round and Constantly. remarried to a woman that, frankly, was so set on not being a step parent, not she having you in the home. You know, you really doubled down wanting to <clears throat> stay in school. And I think that is amazing. That is just fantastic. Well, you know, and, I've, and I'm sure you've gone through some of this yourself. <clears throat> you look around. I remember one night I was working at a gas station. It was really cold and I was high school. I came home and uh, my dad just started cursing at me. <clears throat> You're stupid. You know, you can't do anything right. And my hands still hurt from pumping the gas all day. And I said, dad, I'm just cold and I want to go to bed. He said, you're so stupid. He said, someday you're going to be an old man with no teeth and you're going to have people reporting to you at the same gas station because you're not worth a damn. Oh my and, goodness. Uh, so he was always doing stuff like that to you. And of course, the physical beatings were growing up. So it was kind of a combination. <clears throat> and I always felt so sorry for my mentally ill mom. She's so mentally ill. Right. Believe it or not, she's almost 92. She's still alive. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> wow. But, well, uh, you grew up almost not seeing her whatsoever toward the last half of your childhood. About 30 right? years. And I've tried to now I've sort of adopted her, if you will. I mean, she's, I compare her, I love her to death, right? <clears throat> but she's like a six-year-old with 84 years experience being angry. Right. Because I think mental <laughs> illness. Sorry, but that is a great way to put it. 
she just doesn't, you don't know what you don't know when you're mentally, I mean, it's terrific. right. Right. But um, it's very sad. But my stepmother was just pure evil, pure evil. She did seem very sadistic. Like she wanted to punish you for your existence and the inconvenience you potentially brought into her life should she have ever lifted a finger. So that sounded like a very difficult relationship. And then when you were allowed to see your mother, almost never, you know, she wanted you to almost apologize for how life, how hard her life was. And you were just a child. So it's difficult to navigate that. And of course, she didn't mean to do. She wasn't setting out to harm you. But it's still when you're a child, you still get to be the child. You can't make that up to her. So that was a difficult relationship for a long time. When I was 10, my dad abandoned her and he thought he had killed her off, which I have to read the book to know about that. But um, when I later on in life, um, I always felt guilty that I abandoned my my mom and left her to die. I didn't know she was alive for almost two more years after we not seeing her. <clears throat> but, this was before the days of Facebook and all of the things that make it so easy now. So you wouldn't have known. She's not on anything now. She's in the Stone Age now. Right. She doesn't know I wrote this book, and she will never know. Thank okay. God. <clears throat> but um, when I uh, called her in my it's probably early 50s, <clears throat> I said, you know, you made me feel like I abandoned you, like I left you to die, like I should have been the head of the household at 10, and I would deliver papers and cut the grass, <clears throat> and we'd go on welfare, and you made me feel like I abandoned you. She said, well, you did, and you, you're still not there for me, and um, you have a lot to, to to account for. You have a lot to explain to, you know, wow. you, didn't, you didn't lead a good life, <clears throat> and I asked my dad, you know, did you ever feel bad about beating us half to death, trying to kill our mother? He said, you're a coward. You're never much of a man. I knew you'd never be much of a man, and you are. Don't make up this revisionist crud crap. <clears throat> he said, go straight to hell, and he slammed the phone down. And you kind of realize at some point, and you and I have siblings that were able to do what you did, but cross the line and be healthy, and ones that weren't, <clears throat> you have to make a decision and I think this is the crux of what I tried to say in the book. Childhood is a city you never leave. And if mm -hmm. your image of yourself is bad enough early enough, <clears throat> it can be an extremely hard thing to break. You grow to think you deserve it. You also grow to think you deserve no better. <clears throat> you can only uh, be with people as bad as the people who raise you because you don't deserve better. <clears throat> and um, for me, that was an extremely hard thing to overcome. I made a lot of mistakes because of it, right? And uh, that still haunt me. Um, but the letters I get, like I have 20,000 Goodreads reviews, 10,300 in Amazon, and I have prison writing clubs, all kinds of stuff. Excellent. <clears throat> and the two letters, Elizabeth, and I think this will resonate with you, that really upset me the most. A prisoner who writes and says, I was raised like you by a violent convict, and I'm in my third stint of 10 years in the big house because I can't do anything different than how I was raised. <clears throat> so I answer every letter, I run it back. Yeah, sure you can. <laughs> you can make a lot of different decisions not to do bad things to people. And one guy wrote, I'm the guy whose children will not visit him on his deathbed. And I said, no, you're the guy that gets out of prison, makes a ton of good decisions supports the mother of those kids regardless and becomes their hero 
<clears throat> if you don't get that out of my book, I don't know why you even wrote me or what you, why you read it. <clears throat> the other letters that really upset me even more, I get a lot of letters from older people, mostly women, but some men. I was never able to love, never able to trust. What I went through was so horrific <clears throat> that I know that, you know, I'm fat, I'm stupid, I'm whatever. Ugly. Right. I mean, all the things that you're told <clears throat> that you're no good and they still believe it. And one woman said, I'll, I don't know how you overcame it enough to love and trust anybody because I just can't. I'm going to die alone in this trailer. <clears throat> and mm -hmm. I write letters back to everybody. You always want to encourage everybody. But I, I respond to everything. Um, on Unless it's just go to hell, you're a terrible person. I don't respond to that because right. <laughs> you, you, belong, you belong in prison. I get some of that or, you know. Sure. So, um, but you just can't. Uh, ever respond but it, when it's a letter from somebody like that but you know they're old enough they can't fix this right i mean they <clears throat> they're not writing you and they've got 20 years to go out and meet people and you just feel sad i just say and they mm -hmm. say i don't know how you ever learned to trust anybody right and you know you and i know if you, if you had a perfect life people will lie to you they'll use you sure <clears throat> try to take advantage if your parents did that and they broke you, like I felt broken completely when my dad abandoned my mom and I felt like I was complicit. My journey was feeling that I could fix the unbreaking, that, you know, <clears throat> there's a legal term of art. You can never unring the bell. But what you can do is make a decision at some point that it wasn't your fault and that you couldn't have done something about it. But you can do something about now and for me it was forgiving the people who did this to me <clears throat> but then i went through a process of forgiving myself i didn't realize what a prison i had put myself in wow. a prison that says you're not good enough right you're not a good person you know i would go to college people would brag about their fathers and mothers and i would just clam up you know my dad's my hero and you're like oh <clears throat> or at least my mom always feels like you know i'm the greatest my mom felt like I left her for dead. Right. And uh, those things are hard to overcome. But uh, and it takes a ton of work. You and I know this. So you wouldn't be doing this podcast after what you've been through. If you hadn't done a incredible amount of work <laughs> yeah. to recreate yourself as somebody worthy of being loved, being trusted, being a friend, being what a parent. That's real hard work. That's beyond hard work because most cycles I find women that write me, you know, my dad beat my mom. My husband beats me. <clears throat> Yikes. She thought she deserved that. Right. Uh, or I, um, I married a guy who was an alcoholic who beat me. And then I married another guy who did the same. And, you know, like you're picking people <clears throat> that you think you deserve because you don't think you deserve to be treated well. Right. You don't think you deserve to have somebody say, I love you, open the door for you, be kind to you, think of you when you're not there. <clears throat> you don't deserve any of it. That's what you think because you grow to believe you deserve what you're raised in. And I honestly believe whether it's poverty, alcoholism, physical abuse, like you went through where, you know, men beat women to, you know, and I just, just the thought of it, I just can't stand it. <clears throat> But people grow to think they deserve no better. 
And, and I and, love the point you bring up that we tell ourselves those messages, even when that incident or that journey has ended, we may still be replaying those tapes. So even if we're all alone, there's still abuse going on. Only it's us regurgitating those old memories, those old messages, those old, awful, debilitating things that keep us stuck. You know, I think that's the biggest thing. And you, well, you, you've really got it. One of, um, when I first wrote my book, like you, you know, you find a beta group, you find readers, friends that'll help you. And I, developed a group of friends in the Western Writers of America, which <clears throat> I'm a member. And, and, and it's fun for me because I love books. And But I sent a book to a really good friend of mine. I won't mention her name because she might not want me to. <clears throat> and she's a very successful children's author. And she sent me a note back after she read my book. And it, it was something I'll never forget. She said, I grew up <clears throat> as an only child. My mom was a beauty queen. And she's a very pretty lady, you know, (laughs) and uh, my dad was an older guy who was an alcoholic and my mother and father hated each other with a passion. And boy, you and I both know what that's like when you live in a war zone. And she said, my mother would tell me every day, the only reason I'm not getting a divorce is because of you. And I wish you had never come along. Oh my gosh. And you know, and you and I got some of the so right. when I left home at 18, I thought I was free. You're out in the world, jail doors, but you're not free because that never goes away. And as a result, she never had children. It took her a long time to connect. <clears throat> now she's had a great what I'll call second half, but she had a terrible, terrible time. And I think that's just it. People think, well, you look great. You should be perfect. What they aren't seeing is the internal scars. They don't understand that your mind really absorbs everything that it's taught. And by the time you're about six, you're fully formed. And um, breaking your self-image after childhood is one of the hardest things a person can do. And most never do and most can't. And I tell people, I wrote the book to tell you, yes, you can. Right. It'll be the hardest work you ever do. It won't be easy. There's no straight path. I read every self-help book in the world. Some helped a little, but mostly it did not <clears throat> because I could never see. You know, write yourself a letter saying, I love my childhood self. Well, that just didn't work for me. Right. <laughs> I even went to therapy and the therapist enjoyed me so much. Like, hey, I don't ever want you to go away. I'm You're paying 250 bucks or more an hour and we're just having a great time and it's probably my failure but i never could get anywhere with all that but when i went back to where the worst memories happened Mm -hmm. and it had kind of a serendipitous thing where a guy a man god bless him let me into a house where some of the worst things happened my sister tried to commit suicide in that house my dad cut my mom's brake lining and tried to kill her in that house. <clears throat> he beat her to it within an inch of her life. It's where we abandoned her and left. Went back in that house and I remembered all of it. And the man listened to me. I never told anybody these stories. I talked to him from four in the afternoon to like 2 a.m. <clears throat> and I went home and wrote everything down. And I'd always kept journals, notebooks. But the next day I called my dad and I said, did I ever bother you what you did hell no it didn't 
you we should have gotten rid of her a long time long earlier. <clears throat> you never went along. You're not any kind of a guy. You're a terrible man. And then I asked my mom, do you feel guilty that you made me feel like I left you? You did leave me. So it is your fault. But at that point, I I felt free. Right. Because I understood. I created this prison where I had to be a 10-year-old savior for my mom. And I had to be like a murderous, horrible guy to make my dad happy. And you're busy pushing yourself as hard as you can because you want to be loved and you want to make them happy. But everything they want you to do is horrible. And when adults that are supposed to love you, who are not supposed to hurt you, sexually abuse you or beat you and break bones, when they do it to you, you can break in a way that you don't heal. And people like you that heal are rare, few and far between. And every word out of your mouth, somebody who's broken ought to listen and try to see if they can pick up the shreds of that and figure out a way out of it themselves because it's a narrow path out. It is a narrow path out. And I love that you, you bring it up, but people should know as long as we're still alive, like you told the inmate, as long as we're still alive, there is always hope and we can change those neural pathways in the brain. We just have to work so hard to do it. And we have to be consistently committed and, have the hope and the spark to push back on what we inherited from our families. But it is, we are capable of sending back the inheritance that we got and saying, this is not what I deserve. This is absolutely not what I deserve. And I'm sending my portion back. Thank you. I don't need it. And it's really important that people understand that. I I feel like when I worked with juvenile kids in juvenile probation, and I think like you, I read and looked at people's stories and thought, oh, a lot of people had it so much worse than myself. But when I worked with those kids, and many of them, they didn't they didn't just have parents who died by suicide. They were there when it happened. You know, I mean, we're talking kids sold and you know into doing things that they should have never had to be. But if they felt that they then had to be loyal to that parent and that they absolutely, there was no way out, it was crushing. It was devastating. But some had that instinct early on, like, wait a minute, this is not the group of people I want to be like. This is not the pathway to success that I needed. What else is there? Who else is there to grab my hand? And I... I just love that you always had that mindset. Even as a boy, if you couldn't define it, you had to know. You knew inside it was worth pushing back on the inheritance that your family was offering. <laughs> well, you and you're the, the will. Same, you're the same person, Elizabeth. And, you know, you've, you know, and you and I were sharing, you know, where you have a sibling who's dying, where you have a sibling who's lost all hope, who's withdrawn. Who's who, who had the same experience as you and you love them and you know they're good people, but they weren't able to make that turn. Um, I Over the weekend, I was um, doing some reading and um, there was a memoir and, and I can't remember the name, but the story real quick. <clears throat> There's a, a woman who um, had a stepdad. And uh, the mom was very happy or at least remarried because the guy's treating her right. But the stepdad came into her bedroom from 15 on and started having sex with her 
<clears throat> over and over, basically raping her. Um, not basically, raping her, period. And the kid was very reluctant to tell the mom because finally the mom's happy. <clears throat> and oh. she didn't want to upset. Well, so fast forward 20 years later, as an adult, this girl, now woman, <clears throat> has got all these horrible, you know, I mean, how do you deal with that when you meet somebody else and, you know, um, so she wrote her mom a very long letter saying, this is what happened. And you and I need to talk. <clears throat> Two days later, her mom jumped off a bridge and killed herself. Oh, no. So, and I bring this up, you know, and, and when we, as an aside, I'll send you this because it kind of has a message for you and me when you go through things like you've gone through and I have <clears throat> the, the lasting repercussions and how, what it can be like to never get out of this. But um, what I'm reminded of when I see this is every journey, when you come through a home that's really broken, is a much longer journey than just, I'm out now, I can meet nice people, I'm nice people. Right. It's not that. It's not simple. <clears throat> Your life is one big tape recorder, and you have to erase that tape and replace it with good stuff. And uh, welcome to, it's hard. I uh, helped teach an abnormal psychology class where these PhDs were uh, helping orphan kids that were, came from our kind of background. <clears throat> and it may have been arrogant of me, but I said, I knew more about psychiatry at 10 than you will when you die. <clears throat> I don't care how many PhDs you have. Believe me, if you go through this, it's so much different than reading about it. And I said, you have to understand those kids, <clears throat> they're completely broken. Um, the, the people they're supposed to trust broke their trust in a very horrible way. <clears throat> you're saying, trust me, what they're afraid of is you're going to go tell the parent who beat them and get them beaten worse. Right. <clears throat> the nicer you are, the more they you think, well, you, you, it's not an unconditional love. You want something from me. <clears throat> and um, these kids don't have hope. So if you don't start understanding that, just being nice to these kids and saying, trust me, won't work any more than pouring water on a rock will make it grow. Right. <laughs> it just won't. <clears throat> and you have to understand what's happened to that kid and and what they will have to do to, to undo that damage before they even can begin to think about trust. And most of them won't. Right. It's such a good point. It's such a good point. I think there's a naive view that like, hey, when a kid turns 18, equal playing ground, you know, I mean, everyone, it's like a reset button. We're all on equal, equal playing field. And it's just not, I mean, it's, it's a really, really, really difficult road ahead to be able to make the strides and incorporate those experiences and still move forward to success, but it can be done. It can be done. I love <laughs> that you kept, when you were young, you read and you kept journals and here you were struggling with dyslexia and things like that. When did this book when did you know you needed to write your life story? And what did your family say? Probably at 10. <laughs> My was very much against it. And I mean, very against okay. it. Siblings, don't do it. Spouse, absolutely don't do it. Kids, make sure it can't be connected to me. Um, wow. And I'm sure you had the same thing. <laughs> and, um, but I didn't read it to get even. I didn't read it because I think I'm a victim. I don't. I never did. <clears throat> I never saw it that way. 
Um, I didn't do it to keep score. And I didn't do it to turn myself into some kind of hero because I'm not. Uh, if you read the book, I made a million and one mistakes and a lot of backward steps and a lot of self-harm. <clears throat> I did a lot of things that were really bad. The, uh, the message is you just keep chucking, you know, that there's, you're not Superman. There's not like this. You're not going to leap, uh, out of the phone booths and save Lois Lane or yourself. <clears throat> you're going to really struggle with your journey. Um, but that, like you've said better than me, if you don't stop, you never quit and you keep looking for different ways to heal and to get through this, you will make it and you will change how you see yourself. They say the brain is plastic. You know, you can't make yourself taller, can't make yourself, uh, you know, you can't change your bone structure, but your brain's changeable the entire time. <clears throat> but the work is beyond. Right. And, um, and I think that, my younger sis sibling, actually, the only time I've heard from her, <clears throat> she sent me a note. Oh, my God, you're a famous author. I sent her an email. No, I'm not. I'm just it's just a book. And she said, will you send some to my school's library? So I did. Oh. <clears throat> I said, but then the journey ends. I said, these are middle school kids. They shouldn't be reading this. And um, but then shortly after that, I don't know if the book did it to her or what she told my older sister, younger brother, I never, I will never see you again ever. I, I'm never connected to the last name Crow. Oh. I'll never see any of you ever again. <clears throat> and she just completely withdrew. And I hope that she has good health and happiness and that there was a good decision for her <clears throat> because there's, I don't know what to say that would change her mind. And of course, now you can't really get to her. I mean, emails change. She has no phone number, change her address. But I just tried to let her know that in my journey, at least, I am whole. I am free. <clears throat> and some of the talks I give, people say, what, what, what did you get out of this? I said, I'm not rich. I'm not famous. And I never thought I would be. <clears throat> I didn't do it because people would say, you're, you're such a Superman because I'm not. I did it to be free and to let other people know you can be free, too. And that's it. I love it. <clears throat> That's all it was. And if there's any success to it, people saw that. There was no ulterior motive. There's no grandiose statement. Uh, nothing. I mean, I'm humble because I have a lot to be humble about. I mean, it was not. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> not easy. And, uh, I'm sure, and I have a lot of critics. And a lot of people say, hey, you know, you you, you, you weren't that good of a guy going come growing up. And you, you are you did do a lot of bad stuff, but I tried to go back and apologize to everybody I could and to play it forward and just be a better man than the one I was raised by. And you absolutely are. And I think that's so fantastic. That I like that you mentioned, you know, hey, I didn't write it to get even or to make myself a superhero or be rich and famous. Because by the way, for anyone listening, if, if you write books, it's not your way to for fame and fortune. And even if no. your book becomes a movie... That makes other people rich. It's not going to make the author rich, typically. Yeah, very, very few. It's like playing <laughs> tennis and hoping you win Wimbledon. Right. <laughs> you know? right, but that's not why we do it. You bring a book because it has benefits. I'm sure it benefited you as you got to know your family better writing about them. Uh, but telling your story, sharing it does provide such hope. And I was so inspired by your story. And I love that you... Did it. And back to siblings for a second. I just, I have so many, but I, 
definitely. And my heart goes out to siblings of memoirists because that would feel awkward. I will just say that if you find out your sibling is writing a book, there is just a thousand thoughts you must be having, especially if you come from a chaotic home. For me, I know some of mine had grave reservation and nobody knew it might actually be read, you know, so I think it was fine. I only had one who said, hey, never talk to me again, blah, blah, blah. But, uh, you know, one is not a bad number from the number of siblings I have. And most have been very, very supportive eventually when they realized that I was writing about a time and my own perspective. My own perspective does not mean that I could step into their shoes and know what they were going through, but it was my perspective to benefit other people. And they've been amazing, but it's scary to write. It is very scary to write memoir. You could lose your family. You could lose your kids, your, you know, people around you. So you have to really be committed to providing those benefits and your book really is inspiring. I'm so thank you for writing it and for, you know, being here today and talking about your journey. Can you tell us where we can find out more and just stay in touch with you on your social media, but on your website? And, you know, you blog, I've loved your blog, you have events, and then this movie. So where can we stay in touch with David Crow and get a hold of Pale Face Life? Thank you, Elizabeth. And I want to definitely keep in touch with you offline. <clears throat> so go to davidcrowauthor.com, one word. And the pale face lie can be found in Amazon. It's uh, Kindle, large audio, you name it. Love it. Just put the pale face lie, crow like the bird, and davidcrowauthor.com. <clears throat> and um, I look forward to keeping up with you. I'm... You're an inspiration to me, too. Oh, it's been a- Thank you so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed the show, please follow. And if you've really, really enjoyed it, tell a friend and go ahead and give us a review. I'll see you next week. Proud member of the Podnougan Network.